1: Hello, and welcome to the From the Shadows podcast. I am the producer, Jason Lewis. I would like to thank you for tuning in to the From the Shadows podcast. And without further ado, here is your host, Shane Grove.
2: Welcome, everybody, to this episode of From the Shadows podcast. I'm your host, Shane Grove. Uh, Joining me this very fine evening in the middle of the plague of 2020 is super producer Jason.
1: How's
3: it going, everybody?
2: We have the judge in his Iron Maiden t-shirt.
3: Hey, good evening, everyone.
2: Uh, from Places Unknown, we have Elisa, the uh, field researcher uh, for the from the Shadows podcast. Here's Hello, her... everyone. I was going to say, is there that much of a delay, Elisa? What's going on? You doing, cl- doing dishes or something? <laughs> Holy <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Hey, so we're super excited tonight. We have a... Probably, should we say, the most high-profile guest?
3: I'd say world famous.
2: World famous. Okay. World famous, world-renowned author, ufologist.
3: Cryptozoologist. Cryptozoologist.
2: Um, anything else? Are, Nick, we didn't ask. Are you a good cook?
4: Um, well, I, I can, I'm i good at my, uh, microwaving, you know. <laughs>
2: okay. An expert microwave uh, cook. <laughs> Nick Redfern, Nick, how's it going today? Good, thanks, guys. Hey, we uh, we are excited to have you on. Uh, not as excited as Elisa. She's been, you know, pining over you. Yes, exactly. And 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 <laughs> oh, I don't I don't think it's a coincidence that it's your five-year anniversary.
4: Yeah, there you go. Of the first time, <laughs> you guys met. There, must, there must be like some kind of conspiracy about that, you know? <laughs> Maybe well, you, would you, know. You, would, you would be the guy who would have all the answers to that.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if there's a conspiracy, you're the guy we need to turn to yep. and find out. <laughs> so, 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 Nick, for for those in our audience that <clears throat> are not familiar with your work, mm. first of all, shame on you guys. Second of all, why don't you give us a little bit of your background and and. Let everybody know what uh, how you got to be the world famous uh, author and you know
3: ufologist, yeah. cryptozoologist.
2: You don't have to go into how bad you are in the, using the microwave.
4: That's, that's <laughs> speaks for itself. Well, uh, yeah, I mean I, I am good at microwaving. But joking aside, I do like to cook actually. So, um, but uh, so I'm, I'm okay. I've got like plenty of food in and. Um, you know, I'll be all right for a couple of months. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's very, that's very
2: reassuring. That's very reassuring.
4: <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, to sort of get to your um, your question, um, my interest in all this goes back to when I was just a, a little kid, and um, uh, I was about five or six, and um, my parents took me on a vacation to Scotland. And, of course, if you're going to go to Scotland, uh, you've got to go to Loch Ness. And that's what we did. And um, and my my dad uh, took me down to the shores of Loch Ness. And I still have a few fragments of memories of him taking me down there and sort of carrying me down to the Loch and then telling me the story of the Loch Ness monsters. And um, and that sort of really got me excited, you know, when you're about four or five, something like that. And, And it sort of really, even at that age excited me, you know, that there were monsters, quote, in the water. And we sat there, you know, looking out like most people do, you know, hoping to see something. Um, and I never forgot that first trip to Loch Ness. And, um, when I was about eight or nine, I started to read, um, books by people like Brad Steiger and, um, you know, some of the early books on, um, the paranormal and things like that. And, um, and when I finished school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I wasn't the best um uh, person at school, really, you know in terms of uh, in terms of <laughs> qualifications and things like that. I was pretty useless really and um but as fate or luck would have it, um in the town I was living in at the time when I was about sixteen seventeen um they were advertising for somebody straight out of school to work on a magazine and they would train you in know, all the different different aspects of journalism, whatever. And I thought, well, that sounds kind of fun. You know, it doesn't sound like a real job kind of thing. And um, and it was a magazine called Zero. And it was like, um, it was kind of like a regional what's on entertainment guide to, you know, bands coming into town and, um, you know, what new movies are coming out, that kind of thing. And um, and I did that for about two years. And they taught me all the background in journalism and writing and how to structure articles, and um, and the great thing was, I didn't have to wear a shirt and tie and a jacket for for work, you know, I could just roll in in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt, you know, so it was it's kinda a great like, job. It's
2: kind of like what's going on now for most of America. Yeah,
4: exactly. <laughs> <You> know, most <laughs> yeah. of the world just hanging out. Yeah, so um, I did that for a couple of years, and unfortunately that dropped down, and um, and it was there was a recession in the UK at the time, and... Um, so i I had a bunch of jobs uh, van driver um forklift driver um and I have still got my uh, certificate to drive a forklift, so I can still fall on that, <laughs> on that and um and so I did that and then but then I thought, well, you know, I want to see if I could get back into the writing again, which I did after about eighteen months, something like that and um this was on about twenty four twenty five and um and I thought, well, you know I'm going to try and perhaps write a book and you know just if I don't do it in, say, the next 6 months or the pub, no publishers are interested I'll just get a regular job and um and to my surprise um several publishers got back to me and said oh yeah we'd love to publish this so they had kind of like a like a fighting approach you know to see uh, who was going to uh, be the uh, you know offer the the best um deal and so um you know, I, I sort of took off a lot of it really was, was luck and being in the right place at the right time. And I think a lot of people kind of get that in their lives, you know, you just kind of wander into something and think, Oh, how did that happen? But but it happens, you know. And um so that's that's really what got me going and what got me interested and how I then sort of got into writing and uh and why I'm on the phone talking to you now. So <laughs> <laughs> What well,
2: what was that so what was that first when you decided I'm gonna try to write a book, what was that very first uh book that you that you set out to write and then got well, into a bidding war with?
4: Well, I mean, I I guess like a lot of people, when you you know, you say I'm gonna write a book, you, the first thing you do, you know, you can this was back in um this was sort of 95, 96, something like that. And the first thing I'm sure what I did was probably what a lot of people do. You know, you kind of look at the screen. Back then I had like an old um, Amstrad word processor, <laughs> and, um, oh, <laughs> you know, with a memory about the size of a a P, you know. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and so, um, you know, like a lot of people, I think you think, well, where am I going to start, and what's the subject going to be? And um, and coincidentally, at that same time, the British government started to declassify, it, uh, to, to declassify its a lot of its files on UFOs. And so I thought, well, a lot of people didn't know about those. Uh, you know, there wasn't much of an internet back around about ninety four, ninety five, something like that. So um, I decided that would be the subject of the book. Would be these declassified files, whether pilot reports, radar reports that kind of stuff and the the files were really interesting and um so i I wrote like two sample chapters so the publishers could kind of see my writing style, that kind of thing, and um they liked it and um you know then it was just a case of who I decided to go with and to to be sort of doubly careful, I got myself an agent. Um, and, you know, he handled all the paperwork and the contracts. And, you know, some of the contracts were like, you know, if you drop it on your foot, it would bust a toe there with that thick, you know what I mean? <laughs> so did, they, uh, did the, did the <laughs> yeah. publishing
3: company that you went with, did they give you an advance to finish the book? or? Were they, yes, uh... they
4: did. Yeah, they, they gave me a nice advance. But, uh, I mean, I wouldn't want people to think, you know, I view this just as a, a job. The way I look at it is, what I do is, whether it's cryptozoology or ufology, you know, it, it's it's my passion. This is, you know, it's like I've still got the passion, and excitement, and enthusiasm for all this that I had when I was stood on the sh- on the shores of Loch Ness. You know, I've never lost that. So, what I what I've basically done is to combine a passion with a career. You know, and because um, I wouldn't want people to think that, you know, it, it's just a job. It isn't. If it's sort of exactly the opposite you know but um so but you know having other interests as well beyond just ufos i did a few ufo books and then a couple of bigfoot books and a nessie book a chupacabra Then some paranormal things like with the black-eyed children and the shadow people and um and then a few a couple of political conspiracy books but that's not really my area you know um I kind of mainly leave that to other people. I, I kind of focus on paranormal, cryptozoology, and UFOs. Um, and, you know, as I said, I've done that since, and um, just keep on doing it, you know. <laughs> so in
3: writing these books, you, you cover such a vast topic area. And I, I know there's people out there that are strictly, what we consider themselves Bigfoot experts or specialists, mm-hmm. But having, yeah. but having read some of your books, um, and see and what i love about nick's books at least the one of them that sits in my rest in my bathroom i shouldn't tell myself. oh jeez it sits in the It sits in the bathroom, in the bathroom. <laughs> I, I mean have uh, a little uh, more respect Can no it's a true. little bit here no it's it is a perfect oh, bathroom geez. reader because the way the way nick will... Att- nick will if you be, want to
2: hang up right now we we oh, yeah, yeah. Little, he will
3: you he will appreciate this but as, as the way Nick structured this one book, the, with, it's, a, it's a monster book, um, they're short chapters that you can, you can read quickly, they're succinctly written, and so it, it's one of those books you, you don't have to, you know, spend two hours reading it. You can sit down for five minutes, ten minutes, whatever it is, and you can get a lot of information, a lot of good stuff. You do um, realize
2: that the next time he sits down to write a book, he's going to like be thinking, okay, so can the judge get done in the bathroom in <laughs> the time it takes takes me to write this?
3: Absolutely. <laughs> so, Nick, next time you start oh writing, I say, listen, how long would it take the judge to read this while in, in the crapper? <laughs> but, right but it right is. Session. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a perfect – but th- that huh. book is – Oh, it's a it's a very large book, but it. Uh, which, which was it? The Bigfoot book was it? No, that? it was the it's the uh, the monsters. Uh, what's the exact title of it? Oh gosh, I'm sorry. Not not the one just called the
4: Monster Book. Not that one.
3: Uh, I don't think. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not that one. It is. Um, three men seeking monsters. No, that's that. I have a lot of questions oh, for you. Yeah, oh, yeah, trust yeah, me on yeah. that.
2: yes, that we did. Did. I um, we we had. I'm trying we had, to think
4: what else it might have been. <laughs> uh, I'm looking right now. I did what? Was I can the see monster. the cover. I
3: can see the cover because it's sitting on the on the, the back of my toilet. And just... <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs>
2: well, this interview just went right in the crapper. <laughs> What's on the cover? What's on the cover?
3: It's a it, it's it's a picture. Uh, it starts with the word monsters. I'm telling you, that's what it says. I was less
4: worried about the title. Oh, uh, Monster Diary? Yes, that's it right there. Wait, it's got like a mammoth, like an old mammoth on the front. Yes, it does. Oh, okay, yeah. That that word. one's about, uh, yeah, that came about 10 years ago. But uh, I tend to, with the cryptozoology books, I sort of write, um, for the most part, like in like in a diary fashion, you know, like, um, like a, if you write in a journal. And uh, because I think... If you're going to go on expeditions and look for these things, you might as well write the story in the way it actually happens. So, you know, with the UFO stuff, it's more kind of like documentary-type writing. But whereas going on expeditions, you know, and hunting for weird creatures, that kind of is better if you, you know, you write it like it begins with, um, you know, I uh, I jumped in the car and spun the wheels and headed off looking for Bigfoot in the night, that kind of thing, you know. And, um, and I think people like that approach where they can kind of follow the story as you're going along, you know, and, and it reads like you're just reading somebody's diary or somebody's journal, you know. And um, so that's the approach I usually take with the cryptozoology. As I said, UFOs, a lot of these more sort of documents and interviews. So, um, you know, there's kind of two different ways that I sort of approach these subjects,
3: you know. And I do have the monster book, by the way. That actually sits by my bed. I have a chest by my bed with with various books, and the monster book is actually one that sits by my bed. And it's same thing. Excellent read. Which one sits
2: beside the refrigerator? Or which one sits? No beside? books by there. Okay. And All right. I don't know.
3: It's three, four hundred pages long, but it's it's good. <laughs>
4: Yeah, well, that, those books, where it's like the 400 uh, pages, I mean, they're really long. And I mean, even for me, you know, if somebody gives me a 400-page book to read, I mean, that is, that is long. So that's why with those books, like the monster book, instead of, like, having, you know, 40 chapters, long chapters or whatever, in 400 pages, you, well, you'll know from the book, I kind of do them, like, in A to Z style, and there'll be, like, four pages on the Yeti five pages on Bigfoot, and then six on Nessie, and four on the Chupacabra. So people, because they're such long books, some of those, the 400 pages one, you know, you can actually dip in them wherever you want because you don't have to sort of read from page one to 400. You can just dip in because each little section is its own sort of enclosed um, section on this monster or that monster.
3: And then in that book, it ranges from A to Z. And monsters, and even the one yeah. that, uh, and I even remember, and I'd never heard of this before. The, there's the one chapter about the uh, the man-eating trees. Uh, man-eating oh yeah. yeah, So yeah, it's uh, it just I read that. Uh, I probably read that about two weeks ago, and I was like, holy smokes! Hmm, so, well,
4: yeah. I mean, um, I mean, the book's called the Monster Book, and technically, you know, everything is in the book is a monster, and so I thought, well, you know, there are these stories and legends of sort of man-eating plants and um you know in places like you know south american jungle the um rainforest things like that so i thought well you know that's if if you've got sort of plants that can you know devour people that's pretty much a monster so so even though it's not like a two-legged or a four-legged monster you know it's just it's just it's um you know, some sort of giant plants, it's still a monster, technically speaking. See,
2: this is why I don't garden. This is why I don't
3: (laughs) I I would encourage all of our readers, all of our listeners out there, Mm -hmm. if Uh if you want a a book that A to Z touches on a lot of different monsters and really good topics, pick up Nick's monster book because it hits so many different topic areas. It's fascinating. Um, Obviously I haven't read all 421 pages, uh, but I, I, but you don't have to because you can go through it and pick out the the uh, the stories that you're interested in or the things the topic areas that you that fascinate you the most. And there's a there's a really cool picture in there of the the man-eating plant. So, but uh,
4: I need to look that up.
1: Yeah, I, I want to get a copy of that myself. <laughs> you can come <laughs> no. to my house,
3: and stay out of my bedroom. Oh Jesus! Right.
1: Wow.
4: <laughs> <'Cause>, you're in <laughs> my you bathroom I have, or the um. Bloodline of the Gods, Nessie, and the Black Diary because I was in that one. That's oh. right, were you uh, were. But you still are, yes. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah. asking>
2: <laughs> Nick, hey Nick, don't let her fool you. She never lets us forget that she's in that book. She every time we come and we're together for the podcast, <laughs> oh, that book just happens to fall open to that page, <laughs> and there's like a big heart drawn around the reference to her in there. So we, yeah, we know.
4: We know she's but the most an interesting story, you know, like a little weird strange m i b story you know it was a, it was a strange one that was strange. I was me and my mom was just talking about that earlier. I'm like, you know, we don't even know where the people went because we went to a store, pie wasn't even there for like ten minutes, and they were gone I didn't even know where they went, they didn't go into a store or nothing. That's what the weird part was.
3: For those of you not privy to that conversation, uh, Elisa believes that she had a Men in Black experience one time uh-huh. on vacation. So, and it's uh, it's in uh, it's referenced in Nick's book. Hmm.
2: Did you break it to her that was just a couple guys trying to get her phone number, and when she turned <coughs> them down, they well, just took off.
3: She did say that they gave oh her the hairy God. eyeball. They gave her the. Yeah. They gave her the hairy eyeball. Hey,
2: Nick, now Nick, you mentioned one thing. Well, a couple things I wanted to ask you about the black-eyed children. That that subject scares me to death, but is also fascinating. What? So, give give our listeners a little background on black eyed children and what what they're all
4: about. Well, this is sort of a really weird kind of phenomenon, which didn't really begin until uh, round about nineteen ninety seven, ninety eight. So, round about twenty years ago, a little bit more. But even then, it didn't really take off big time. It wasn't until sort of the early to mid-2000s, sort of 2004, 2005, 2006, when it really started to take off. And the first person who um, talked about this uh, was a guy named Brian Bethel, who um, lives and works in Texas. He's a a full-time journalist on a a newspaper. And... um, he was involved he was one of the first people if not the first person to talk about having had an uh one of the black-eyed children experiences um now with hindsight you know you, you can think well does that mean that was the first case it doesn't it actually doesn't what it actually means is that brian was the first person to talk about it but over the years other people have come forward after the whole phenomenon's been talked about and people have said, well, I saw something like this, you know, 50 years ago when I was a kid and, um, you know, and then they come forward because someone else has come forward. So it is difficult to say how old the phenomenon is, but in terms of people talking about it, it definitely was sort of, apart from Brian Bethel, it really was sort of the early 2000s, sort of 15, 16 years ago, something like that. Um, And the black-eyed children... Well, they're called the black eye children because their eyes are reportedly completely black. You know, not just a sort of a larger black middle area, but the entire eyes are black. And they, they're kind of strange in the sense that typically they look between the ages of like about 10 and 13. And you don't really see any kind of younger than that. And you don't see any older than that it's kind of like they're all suspended in sort of um you know just that that age if you like or that age period and typically what happens is that they'll knock on people's doors late at night and um if you imagine you know sort of you're watching tv at night it's 10 o'clock and there's suddenly a loud bang on the door I mean, the first thing you know, you know, you're going to look through the, the spy hole on the front door. And um, and if you see these sort of three creepy kids with like milk white skin, that's how it's described. You know, their skin is like literally white, white. And they've got these black hoodies on that they kind of push um, over their head so you can barely see the face. And I think they do that. So you don't get a good look at the black eyes, you know, because it's dark outside and they've got the heads down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But, and they, people feel compelled to open the door. You know, you, most of us, in that situation, ten, eleven o'clock at night, you see three kids in hoodies at the door, you're not gonna open it to them. But the weird thing is, most of the witnesses have to open the door and um, they felt in in a strange way that their mind was being controlled or kind of like a sense of hypnotism and, some of them said they actually really had to fight hard to prevent themselves from opening the door, never mind preventing the the kids from coming in, but actually preventing them One of the guys talked about how he looked at his arm with with terror as his arm went towards the door to open the door, and he didn't realize what was going on because he didn't he actually wasn't doing it of his own volition, so to speak um And in the several cases, there aren't many cases where they have managed to get in, but in the cases where they have got into people's homes, the witnesses have said, literally within minutes, that they've started to feel sort of weak and tired and crashing, like like a diabetic would crash, you know, if they hadn't had food for 10 hours or whatever, you know, and they get the shakes and they feel ill and clammy and cold, and... The witnesses have said they, they felt as if the black-eyed children were quite literally draining them of energy, kind of like a psychic vampire, and they, that is one of the big theories, that the black-eyed children are sort of like a an energy vampire, and, they, you know, and that's one of the other interesting parallels with the vampire thing, is that they won't come into your house until you invite them in. That's why they appear to um sort of hypnotize people because unless you tell them you can come in they stand on the door frustrated and screaming at the people why won't you let us in that kind of thing so so it has like a lot of parallels and overtones related to like vampires you know even the old legends of vampires and and it, most of the people said they felt they were sort of literally being almost digested in a very strange way but like digesting your energy your life force you know
3: brian's story i think you can see it on monsters and monsters and mystery or monsters america
4: mm-hmm.
3: uh, on demand so on destination america or travel channel and he tells a very compelling story about how he he pulled into basically a a parking lot of a strip yep. mall and these three kids approached the car two kids and they asked for a ride home and he, you know, felt nervous about it. And he saw their eyes, and the same thing that, that Nick's explained. He just he they he almost let him in the car, and, and he knew he shouldn't. And yeah. they became more and more agitated. Like, come on, Mister, just give us a ride home, you know. And then I think they even gave him some story that the, they couldn't get into the movie or whatever. And he was like, Well, wait a minute, the parking lot's empty. I mean, there would see, be no movie. See, yet.
2: I had never until Nick just said, that, I'd never heard that they had tried to get into people's houses. Everything I'd ever heard was they approached people in cars. No, I've
1: heard about They do try to get in your houses. They'll knock on the door. Are you sure
2: these aren't the people trying to sell the magazines, like the people (laughs) drop them off in
4: the... One of the the
1: things that's consistent with every story that I've heard about these black-eyed children is that they cannot come in unless you invite them, similar to like a vampire.
3: That's right. So, So, Nick, tell us, I mean, obviously... Nobody has the 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 definitive answer Um, for all of our listeners. What are your thoughts?
4: Well, I mean, some people say you know they're aliens, but a lot of people don't realize that there isn't a single report of the black-eyed children having been seen in association with UFOs. You know, and you think you might think there would be because you know you see the pictures of aliens on TV and you know on the net, and they're always got like the large black eyes. Um, so you would think, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, would you think, um, well, they're like a cross between human and alien hybrids. That's one of the theories. But as I said, there's not been a case where, you know, the, there's an association or a connection between the black-eyed children and UFOs. But you've got other theories. I mean, um, some people think they're demonic creatures that can take on sort of different forms. Um, and um you know they they're not quite sort of fitting in as much as they'd want to that kind of thing um a lot of people kind of go down that path like the, the paranormal supernatural angle and um you know some of them as i said take the view that they are kind of literally demonic you know and taking on different forms and um but uh you know it's, it's a really weird and creepy phenomenon and um David Weatherly, a good friend of mine um, David wrote sort of the definitive book on the uh, black eyed children and that's um, that that's a, um, the, his book's called black eyed children that's a really good book cuz it covers the, the the main really good cases and also you know the different theories as to as to what they might be
2: now have they so they so like the story you were telling like they got into the house what got them out of the house did i mean i assume the person was able to tell the story because they survived whatever encounter they had. Well,
4: yeah, well, the the two cases that I have where they managed to get into the house, and they managed to get in the house because the hypnotism or whatever you want to call it, mind control, was too strong, and they felt themselves opening the door, and they did open the door, and they backed away, sat down, and the children stood in front of them, and one of them just said something like, food or need food it wasn't even like a full sentence it was like really you know as if they couldn't speak english properly and um and that's when they started to feel weak and tired as if they were being drained and the and the black-eyed children were feeding on that energy um but what's interesting is that in both cases neither of the witnesses could remember how they left the house or the apartment or whatever it was uh, in one case, it was an apartment. Um, but they, they could not remember how, you know, they'd left. It was if, or it. was almost as if, like, three or four minutes of their memory had just been erased, you know. Um, not kind of like, you know, where you wake up in the middle of the night or whatever and fall back to sleep and, you know, you, you, you have vague memories of doing it but you can't remember it all. It wasn't like that. It really was the whole 10 minutes or whatever it was was just gone you know then they tried as hard as they could they just could not remember anything after them coming in and then what they all they could remember after that was just coming round you know and um with no recollection of anything else at all so um we don't re- unfortunately you know we don't really know what has happened or still happens in that kind of missing time period uh, um, you know, and I don't think anybody's really got an answer for
2: that. Well, I, w- I will say the ter- psychic vampire would be a killer band name. Yes. I'm sitting here. I'm sitting here looking at your, your Iron Maiden shirt, Judge, and that skull has he has black eyes. It's Eddie the Trooper. I'm Eddie the Trooper. Eddie
3: the Trooper. <laughs> <laughs> or Motley Crue. And I was,
2: you know, when when Nick was saying about how time, ta- you know, the time. You're feeling your energy get. That's kind of what it's like when Jerry's here with us. And he's not here, so we're we're good. But that's so you're, of,
3: what you're saying is Jerry sucks the life force on. He's like a
2: psychic, much larger <laughs> vampire. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> a like a psychic um now, Nick, I did wanna um I was talking today to a good friend of ours, uh, David Hensley, the host of The Paranormal Road. He was on and had told a crazy story about a Entity that he disc that he kinda he didn't know what it was when it happened to him when he was what was he, 19, I think he said or twenty. And it then since visited his kids, three of his four kids. He was like sixteen. Yeah. Yeah. And uh he discovered it was called it's called the Hat Man. Do you oh, know yeah. do you know what do you know about the Hat Man? Because I told David, I said, Hey, I'm a you know, we got the the worldwide expert on all things cryptid and paranormal, we're asking him. About the Hat Man, what do you what do you know about the Hat
4: Man? Well, I've actually written quite extensively about the Hat Man, and in several of my books, because there's parallels between um, the Hat Man and the sort of the real Men in Black, which are, and the real Men in Black, which we can get into, and nothing like Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. <laughs> you know, it's completely different. than just Hollywood's version. But the Hat Man is this sort of this entity that people usually see the dead of night and typically when they're in bed and sort of like 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., um, they'll wake up in the bed sort of semi-paralyzed, not able to move properly. And they they have a sense of something like coming towards the corridor to the bedroom and like a sense of fear It gets bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. Or sometimes they just wake up and they, this figure is already looming over them and it's it's basically like um like imagine something like an intelligent um self um uh, kind of shadow you know like a when we leave our shadows you know when we're we're walking along but you imagine something that looks like a shadow but which is an intelligent shadow if you like and that just and can follow you and it's called the hat man because the outline of the shadow is sort of like a guy in a in a black suit and an old style fedora hat, you know the the kind of hat that the guys would wear um, back in the 30s and 40s and 50s. You know the the kind of hat you would see in like some old black and white 1950s gangster movie. Yep. You know those, yep. all those with old a full hats. with a full suit suit
2: with a full suit suit. Yeah,
4: exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yes. you're right because they wear the suits as well, but. Um, but they dress in totally black um sometimes they're described as having these self um glowing um red eyes not always that is not the, the red eyes aren't always there but the the hat and the suit is always the same and it's always shadowy and dark and sometimes they just loom over in in the bed and terrorize people uh, on other and then they leave, they back away. On other occasions, uh, people just see them um, out of the corner of their eye. And um, and what I've found uh, to be particularly interesting is that I've I've got a quite a few cases where people were sort of digging into the world of the paranormal and the occult, and and digging more and more into it. And what would start to happen was that they would start to see like these shadow people just out the corner of their eye like, and they would turn their head and it would be like it didn't move so quickly they could barely see it but it was enough that they could see it you know it's kind of like you're watching TV and then you see a flash of something dark past your eye and I've got a lot of cases in relation to the shadow people like that where people are just sitting on the couch you know and then by the kitchen door or something they see this sort of six foot tall dark shadow but it goes so fast they can barely See it, but they knew they did see it. So there's a lot of similarities, um, you know, with the the hat man and um, the Nick, hat man. He's cut. Co-
3: Nick, can I jump in there? When my yeah. daughter, when my daughter was about nine, ten years old, <clears throat> we had moved into this house, and she started telling me in the mornings that she saw the shadow of a guy with a big hat in a trench coat that was in her room, and it, uh, you know, really freaked her out, you know, she was scared, I said, well, why didn't you get up and come and get me, I was too scared to get out of bed, I just laid there, how long did you see it, it seemed like 10 minutes, and she, uh, and then she went to her mom's house, and she saw the same thing there, and then she came back, and she had no reference to what it isn't like she had seen this on TV and was, you know, mimicking it. And then she said that she saw it, like, lean its head back and open its mouth, making, like, a laughing motion, but she didn't hear any sound. And then it creeped wow. out of the room and went to open my door, and then she pulled the covers over her head. And I'm like, well, gee, that's... Gee, thanks crazy. for warning me, kid. Thanks for warning <laughs> so I hey,
4: had never, be, you that's know, something like that, that happened to you. Never mind as a as a kid, you know. Never mind as an adult as well, you know. Good luck, so. good luck,
2: Dad. Hopefully yeah.
3: But see, I'd
4: never, yeah. I'd
3: never, you know, I've, I've been a big cryptid guy uh, for many years, but I never had really heard about this. And then I started doing some research, and it's like, you know, fill us in that these reports all over the world, people see the exact same thing. Well,
2: know? now, now, Nick, have you ever come across a report where the hat man spoke to its victim
4: Yeah, you know, it's funny you should say that because i actually haven't um all the ones i mean i can't speak obviously for every investigator of the the shadow people and the hat man which is kind of like the um a combined thing but um all the ones i've got the people just what kind of wake up or they are deliberately woken up and they just see the thing standing there and they get this sense of evil even though it's not saying anything. Um, so yeah, the cases I've got, which is quite a few, you know, they actually don't really say anything at all. And um, and I sometimes wonder, you know, if the whole purpose again is like, um, you know, to terrify the witness and then, you know, you've got all these adrenaline, and all these, you know, chemicals pumping around your body. I, again, I wonder if it's sort of um, like a psychic vampire thing, you know, get the person, you know, the kid or the adult into a state of terror and then feed on them, you know. And that may be why a lot of people who've seen The Hatman have said they've woke up the next morning and they just kind of feel wiped out as if they had no sleep at all, you know. so So you can kind of put a few little parallels here which might just sort of give us a few insights as to what they do and why they do it, you know. Maybe... In a sort of really kind of disturbing way, they come out at night and and feed on us when we're sort of vulnerable in the sleep state, possibly.
2: Well, I'll give we'll give you the the exclusive scoop then, because David Hensley, the host of the Paranormal Road podcast, mm-hmm. he actually when he had his experience, the Hat Man spoke to him. Oh. And he said he studied. Case after case after case. Once he figured, and he had never seen another instance where the Hat Man communicated in any way. So he, you know, he didn't know whether that was he was just special <laughs> in a bad way.
1: <laughs> well, you know, David also you remember it's it's made contact with his with, yeah all with three all three children yeah
2: too. three of his kids, including including his one son who was a Marine. the The very night he was telling somebody. What a thousand, twelve hundred miles away that that son had never had an experience, and guess who visited him that night in the Marine barracks? Was the Hat Man? So is it, I mean, he's still like telling us that story. How many years? Thirty years after it happened to him, yeah. was he? I mean, he tells us that if it happened to him again today, he wouldn't survive the experience. Oh, well, it's like he's terrified. Yeah, he's terrified of it. So I mean, I can't even imagine. You know, and he's. I talked to him today, he said he's still afraid that even us talking about it, it may come to visit him or his kids tonight. That's well, like,
4: it's funny you should say that because there's actually quite a few cases like that where people talked about it and then it came back. Or people um, decided not to talk about it and didn't talk about it for years because they thought that if they did, it might come back. So that actually is like a legitimate... Aspect to it, if you think about it or talk about it, it seems to, to come again. Is there so, any folklore well the,
3: out there about whether you can, can conjure ooh. this thing up? I mean, Nick, if you in your research, if you came across anything where people could actually conjure this? Because you talked about people who were starting to get deep into the occult.
4: Yeah. yeah. Well, I've got a few cases. Um, are you still there? Oh, yes. yeah, yeah. Oh okay, now the phone just made a funny noise at this end. <laughs> Let's hope it's not the shadow people with the hat oh, <laughs> <laughs> But um yeah, I mean, um in terms of um what what was the question again?
3: <laughs> is there is there any evidence or any research part of the folklore involving the hat man or shadow man that this is something that could be conjured up? Did you oh, have yeah.
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, the the most intriguing thing is that I've got a number of cases where people had seen the hat man or this similar one to it, which doesn't always have the hat on, but which is known as the shadow people. So, but I've got a number of cases where people were sort of using Ouija boards and with hindsight, they felt that they'd opened a door allowing the, the hat man to come through. Now, they weren't specifically trying to conjure up um, a hat man or a shadow person. They were just sort of, you know, playing like a kids sometimes on a Friday night, you know, sort of crack open the beer and let's play with a Ouija board, that kind of thing. Um, but there was no intention to try and, you know, sort of pull out um, a hat man. That's what came through, perhaps three or four hours in the middle of the night, you know, after all the other kids had gone home, you know, and it's three in the morning, then suddenly that appears. So I I don't have any cases where people were deliberately trying to conjure up um, one of these hatman people, but I do have a few cases where that was kind of the result of digging into, you know, trying to conjure up or... Communicate with supernatural beings, and, and and then they got, not necessarily what they were asking for, but they, they got what they got, you know. Well,
2: here here's the deal. So if the Hatman visited visits David Hensley or any of his kids tonight, we're cutting this part out of the mm-hmm. podcast. They'll never know that we brought it up and we're part and helped, <laughs> and helped conjure it we'll, mums the word everybody in on that deal All right. <laughs> um, uh one of the other one of the other things so you got your start talking about the UF about UFOs and the files that got released over in England yeah okay so how does the way and I don't know enough to know uh to know enough about what um, got released or how forthcoming the British government is. But how do you compare th- what they did by releasing the files and putting it out there versus how secretive or you know trying to hush everything the, the United States government is about that?
4: Well, I think... It takes pretty much parallels the same situation, you know, the U.S. to the U.K., in the sense that, you know, that over the years, they actually both nations have released some very interesting documents, you know, where pilots tried to uh, chase UFOs or they're picked up on radar. You know, they were seen hovering over military bases. You know, you can find official reports like that in, in a number of countries, like Australia. They've released a lot of their files in Canada and uh, France, and um, Brazil through their Freedom Information Act, they've released a lot of files as well. But it's like in every of these one of these countries, they'll go so far, and they will release some genuine intriguing files. But, you know, things like dead aliens and crashed UFOs and Roswell, you never get anything on that, you know. It's mm-hmm. almost as if, well, they're saying, well, okay, we'll, we'll give the public something, you know, and um, we'll see what they think about it, and maybe we can release a bit more, you know, and start to unravel the secrets, but kind of like the, you know, the hard evidence that you people look for, like, you know, like dead aliens and alien autopsies and secret files, you know, we never get that, it's it's as if somebody decided we'll show them something, but we're not going to show them everything, you know.
2: I I was especially intrigued, about about your roswell theory about Mm. do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about that Uh, i mean i i i had never heard that angle Mm. on on that
4: event well i've done two books on roswell one's called body snatchers in the desert which came out in 2005 and then the roswell ufo conspiracy which came out in 2017 and over the years you know people contact you if you write a book or they see you on tv you know they'll contact you and say hey you know uh, sorry on the show i wanted to share something i knew and that was kind of like what happened and over the uh, to sort of like sort of um, trim it down um i spoke to a, a number of uh, old-timers in the military in the intelligence community who said that yes yeah, something actually Really weird did happen out in the deserts just outside of New Mex of uh, Roswell, New Mexico, in the summer of 1947. But they said, well, but but it wasn't an ET event. It wasn't a UFO crash, and and they said the primary reason why the whole thing was hidden was not because of um, like an alien crash, but because the, the it basically revolved around secret, top-secret experiments using um high-flying balloons and devices that um, and craft that would sort of go up to the higher levels of the stratosphere when when the government and the military was sort of doing uh, work and research into how the human body could be affected by hal- high altitude and cosmic rays and they said that the the so-called ufo crash was one of these top-secret um, vehicles that were sort of um, sent up in with a rocket, kind of like with the Apollo rockets, and then you'd have what part which would come away and detach and, uh, and sort of come to the ground with a huge balloon. And that um, because this was the early years of the Cold War and right after the Second World War, didn't want the Russians to find out, they hid the um the truth of it behind like um, a ufo banner now of course you know it could be the truth is the exact opposite that the other you know the 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 aliens really did crash and you know that um and that they use the high altitude experiments as a cover for a real ufo crash so but i don't think we'll ever know the answer but i did find some genuinely interesting data that showed how some really weird experiments were going on in new mexico in the summer of 1947 because a lot of german scientists were brought over uh, with a program called operation paperclip in the 40s after the second world war secretly brought over to continue their rocket experiments in new mexico and um and on top of that they would fly they were sort of um Sending monkeys and chimpanzees in in experiments even in, even pigs in some um, examples to see how they would be affected or not affected by high altitude and cosmic rays and things like that, so that there was you know a lot of genuinely weird uh, things going on in that area at that time, so um, you know I think unless or if you know the files, the original real files ever surface. You know, seventy years late or seventy-three late, uh, years later now. I honestly don't think, without being pessimistic, but I think it's going to be really mm-hmm. difficult to figure out. You know, um, what really happened and which is the cover story and which is the truth. You know.
2: Now, now on that, on that right there. What is the? This just came to me. What's the best? piece of anonymous evidence you ever got in the mail that blew your mind, but you didn't know that you couldn't, couldn't back it up enough to release it and tell anybody? Well,
4: well, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, when I, if I, if I get data and information, you know, the story only goes one way or two ways or whatever. Um, what I've always done is to demonstrate and tell people that this is what I've found. You know, this is what I've uncovered, and I think this is the answer, and you know, I've got this data, and I've got, you know, these interviewees, and I've put a story together, and I think this is the answer, but what I don't do, I don't force it down people's throats, because you can never be sure, particularly when you're dealing with, like, whistleblowers and things like that, you you don't know if you can trust them even, you know, are they trying to push you down a different avenue, so... In that sense, I'm always careful to tell people, you know, this is what I was told rather than me say, I know for sure this is true. When, you know, if you're honest with yourself, you don't know because there's so many sort of halls of mirrors, you know, in these, within these secrets relating to UFOs that you just don't know who's giving you a true story, who isn't. So when you talk about, you know, there have been a couple of occasions, only a couple where literally things were dropped on the doorstep literally overnight you know I've gone to bed like midnight the night before and there was like a package on the um on the doorstep and one of them was back in 2016 and it was basically uh, a bunch of material that an old timer guy had put together on the the so-called philadelphia experiments and for people who don't know about this it goes back to 1943 and supposedly a top-secret US Navy program to try and make a um, a Navy battleship um, into, uh, to make it sort of um, to where it couldn't be picked up on radar. It'd be radar invisible but the whole thing went wrong and some of the sailors uh, reportedly died when the ship literally became briefly uh, invisible and I was looking into this at, this in, back in twenty sixteen. I was putting feelers out and I uh, had a really weird call from this old guy who said that um he could help, and you know I didn't know if it was just somebody playing a prank or not you know when when you got a call you know private call that kind of thing, and you got this old guy well, he clearly was an old guy um you know telling you this story about what he knew about this uh, Philadelphia experiment, you know it was a fascinating story, and uh, I said, well. Can you show me some proof? And then literally just a couple of days later, I got up, you know, opened the front door and, um, and there was this package. And, um, it actually contained some original, he didn't talk about Navy files on the experiment, but he'd sent me a, a U.S. Navy, uh, document documents from 1943, which wasn't a photocopy. It was like about a 40, 50 page document. um, original paper you know like yellow pages and fraying and all that kind of stuff so that that hasn't happened as many times as people (laughs) might think you know but uh, but that was a genuinely weird situation you know i'm digging into this philadelphia experiment and this weird situation that went wrong and the you know the ship vanished and the 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 sailors went in briefly invisible and went crazy and um and then suddenly, you know, this pops up on the doorstep. And um, as I say, it's happened. That, in that situation, that's happened twice and over the last five years. But I do get a lot of old timers, you know, who in their 80s or 90s and say, you know, they'll come forward and say, basically, you know, what have they got to lose at that age? I guess, you know, they've got nothing to lose. So um, that does happen now and again.
3: Do you ever get the, have you ever gotten the impression that maybe you got too close to the truth and the government or some agency, you know, has, is, is following you, tailing you, tapping your lines or anything like that?
4: Well, um, I mean, certainly in this situation, um, I mean, when I was doing the research into the Philadelphia experiments, I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't hiding it from fellow colleagues and friends and whatever. But I was just doing it myself, you know. Um, but this old guy clearly somehow knew what I was doing. So, so that kind of ties in, you know, with what you're talking about. I mean,
3: well, he knew where and you lived, where he could drop he the package, when he, he knew you knew, would yeah, get Yeah,
4: he knew what I was doing. You know, the research at that time. But there, have, there was a period around about 2015, 16. When I was doing a real uh, deep bunch of research into the men in black, and I started to get real really weird phone calls in the dead of night, sort of two three a m now of course, like most of us, you know don't you know, no matter what country you live in you know if the phone rings at three a m you don't know, matter if you're in the u s the u k russia or whatever, everybody thinks the same thing it's bad news, you know if it's three a m oh, or yeah. something like uh, that yeah. and <clears> um, so you go to the phone and you know, well, who is it? And, um, and this happened like five or six times when I was doing all this men in black research. And when I picked the phone up, it would, it would say like private caller or unknown caller. And, um, or it always said something, one of I remember one time it said something like number not available or, or unavailable. That's what it was. It was unavailable. And, um, and when I went to pick the phone up. There was like all this really weird noise on the phone. Like, Almost like, if you imagine, sort of like mechanical screeches and clangs, but almost almost sounding like a language as well. And this went on and on over the course of about a week or two, and it would be like, you know, maybe once on a Monday, and then one the Thursday, and then one the next Monday. And it kept going on and on. And you get a lot of that in the Men in Black research. People get these weird phone calls. But there was actually one night, when uh, it was, again it was like two thirty, three 3 a.m. I walked to the phone, picked it up, and as I picked it up, the, the because I've got, obviously I've got caller ID, and um, and it said uh, the number was actually my own phone number, and uh, <laughs> I, I kind of thought I kind of thought afterwards it was like you know that old film where where the, yeah, um, they're calling um, the in the bed. Ba- ba- s- yeah they're calling in yeah, the bedroom yeah you get the baby sitting, yeah. you know and the police say you know the call's coming from inside the house that oh yeah but, um, <laughs> I remember watching that when I was a kid I was like whoa <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> yeah but um, but yeah I've had a lot of things like that and um, and a lot of just just weird stuff like that where you, you clearly kind of get an idea that Somebody is watching, but they're doing it in a really kind of cloak-and-dagger, shadowy fashion. You know, I've never kind of had, you know, somebody slam me up against the wall or whatever or <laughs> nothing like that. And Don't talk about this. That's never happened. But, did you ever, uh, like, stick
3: your head under the car, make sure somebody did cut your brake line or something?
4: <laughs> yeah, I guess. Maybe I ought to now and again. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> well, well, let
3: me ask you this, Nick, real quick. We had... Very early on when we first started from the Shadows podcast, we had a roundtable discussion that never got aired. And one of the because issues, the men in black stopped Because it. the men in black stopped yeah. us. But oh. one of the questions is, if the U.S. government has proof of aliens, they know there's aliens, they know there's something that some other race or species has mastered some sort of propulsion system, that is able to travel faster than the speed of light, or they have some sort of quantum mechanics that they're able to transfer. Why would the government hide that from us? And, And we sort of had this debate, and my argument was the government is worried that if people knew that there was another species from another planet, one, it would possibly rock a lot of the religious... Institutions that we have.
2: Listen, people can't even stay inside for two weeks without going out right. of their minds. So, what are they going to...
3: So, <laughs> you know, gonna... so my theory was, look, th- th- there's always the worry about breakdown of the social contract, that, you know, mass paranoia and stuff like that. Any... Can, you you want to throw... You don't have to, but you want to throw your hat <laughs> in the ring as to why... If aliens exist, the government does not. Or want us or to.
2: why the air the government just came out and verified those air force tapes. Well, while we're, well, we're looking at something else, you know.
4: Well, my, my view. I mean, when, when people talk about you know government secrecy on UFOs, you know, people say the government, this, government that. I actually don't. All the research I've done, I personally don't think it is. Quote the government that is sitting on all this. What I think there is, there's sort of maybe one, or at least least one, but two or three possibly, really powerful organizations that are deeply hidden within the government to the point where even the agencies like the CIA may not even know that these secret agencies that are sitting on the UFO material, they don't even know that they exist. So in other words, you know, we think that the government has all the UFO answers, but I think it's like a very deep, hidden, powerful group that is sort of sitting on all the really, truly important information. And the vast majority of people in government don't even know about it. And I think they're the ones who are sort of dictating what we're allowed to know and what we're not allowed to know. But, um, you know, in terms of the other part of you know your question, yeah, I mean, there could be multiple reasons why there are people who don't want this to come out. And obviously one of them is the, the religious angle, you know, I mean, um, how would this sort of impact on on religions? I mean, you know, for people who, who someone who's a Christian and believes that, you know, um, we were made in, in God's appearance. Well, how then do you explain something like an alien gray, you know, this little three foot tall thing with a big head and black eyes? Well, they don't look anything like us, apart from he's got a head and two arms and two legs. So, you know, who, who created them? So, you know, you've got questions like that to be asked. And I think also, you know, there's one of the things that the, a lot of people totally forget, and I think it's an important one, is that we assume that the government actually is hiding the answers because it's got all the answers. But I think there's a good possibility that the government may have a lot of data and information and photographs. They might even have dead bodies. But that doesn't actually tell them what they've got or what or what the agenda of these creatures is. So I, I sometimes wonder, you know, we think the government knows everything. The big irony is that the government knows something's going on. But they may not really fully understand any more than we do. And they may think, Well, if we can't if we don't have the answers, how can we tell the public? So, you know, a lot of people don't think of that, but the idea that the government may be hiding things because they actually don't know what's going on rather than that they do know what's going on. It's pro- it's
2: probably Better for them to for people to think all oh, they know what's going on and they're hiding it than yeah. to actually and think say, hey, God they don't really know anything things.
3: they don't know anything. Well, I mean, exactly. The, the, yeah. You'd have to concede. I mean, if the government had bodies, they would have to concede.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, that's all the time that we have this week. So tune in next week as we continue this amazing interview with Nick Redfern. Please visit us. On our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash from the shadows podcast and on our Instagram page at instagram.com forward slash from the shadows podcast. You can visit our web page at from the shadows podcast dot dot com. Or. Contribute to our Facebook discussion page called After the Shadows. And tweet us on our Twitter feed at twitter.com forward slash podcast underscore from. Thank you for joining us and we look forward to hearing from you all. Until next time, never shy away from the darkness or what may be lurking in the shadows. We are out.